Hello, hello, and welcome back, all of you lovely listeners. Thank you so much for joining us once more on Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. And we certainly have both a lot of science and a lot of stories for you today, you lucky, lucky people. Hi again, you're here with me, Jack, and uh, I was particularly excited to interview today's guest for a number of reasons, partly because uh, he's such a really good uh, communicator, such a good science communicator. Uh, He's from British Antarctic Survey, where I have some supervisors there, and he uh, is also a marine biologist, so we had quite a a lot in in common. This, as I said, he is such a good communicator. Our editors couldn't figure out how much to, they didn't want to cut anything out after listening to it. So what we've decided to do is split this episode into two halves. So this first half will be all about his uh, research, science. We talk about many things. We talk about, um, you know, how creatures live deep down underneath the ice with, uh, you know, with no sunlight and uh, no source of food and stuff like that. We talk about biogeography and what that word means and how being a biogeographer as a scientist is slightly different from being a specialist. Um, We talk about all kinds of things. and It was really fun and interesting. So this is part one of uh, my interview with this guest. Uh, sorry, that was kind of wordy, but I try not to give too much away in the interview, uh, in the inter- introduction. So uh, I hope you enjoy. And then stick around. There will be a part two coming out today as well. Okay, everyone, please welcome to the stage our guest for today, Hugh Griffiths. Hi, Hugh. How's it going? Hi. Um, yeah, it's really good. Thanks. It's kind of nice to be on something different, especially during lockdown. Awesome. Thank you for taking the time to come on to uh, Polar Times. So this is the first bit of the episode. We call it the icebreaker. It's uh, is that the same name as the canteen at Bass? I think it is, isn't it? Unfortunately, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that puns are universal. Sure. Yeah, I promise it wasn't. Um, I just realised that now. So <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So my first question, as usual, is to all of our guests: is who are you, and how did you come to polar life? Ah, so I'm Hugh Griffiths. I'm a marine biologist at the British Antarctic Survey, and unbelievably, I've been doing that now for nearly 21 years. So it comes as a shock to me, as much as anyone else, probably, that I've been doing a job like that. The marine biology bit came first. The polar stuff was definitely a kind of almost a happy accident. So I grew up in West Wales by the sea and always was down the beach, just playing in rock pools catching fish and crabs and things and just exploring the beach other than a phase when I was very little of wanting to be an elephant when I grew up really pretty much marine biologist was it from the time when I could think of a sensible job and was told by teachers oh there are no real jobs in marine biology and careers advisor said oh you should do maybe do a degree in marine biology but you could get a law conversion course or something like that and I was like, no, no, I'm going to be a marine biologist. And so then I went to University at Liverpool, studied marine biology. It was when they still had a marine lab on the Isle of Man, so it was very hands-on. Our final year was out there doing full-on kind of ecology. And a lot of people were doing rocky shore ecology and things like that. But actually, I went out on their survey boat to do scallop ground surveying, which is basically using the same equipment that they used to catch scallops with from the bottom of the sea, which are little dredges and looking at what they catch. So that seems completely unrelated to the Antarctic, but actually the field work I do now is pretty much the same system as we're doing there, a series of images and grabs and trawls and things to see what lives at the bottom of the sea. And for that, it was all to do with surveying for fisheries and the impact of the fisheries. And now a lot of the stuff I do in Antarctica is related to marine protected areas and things like that. So weirdly, the thing I was doing in the Irish Sea around the Isle of Man is directly applicable skills to what I do in Antarctica. But at the time, I remember vividly that we were coming up towards finals exams and the adverts were out for the Bass British Antarctic Survey jobs in Antarctica, including the wintering at marine biologist and marine assistant, which are two of the coolest jobs in Antarctica. You literally get to go diving under the ice all winter and then diving from boats in the summer. People said, hey, are you going to apply for the Bass jobs? And I was like, why would anybody want to work there? It's freezing cold and it's dark for six months of the year. And there's pretty much nothing going on there. And it's just, yeah. 
So at that point, I didn't understand what Antarctica was really like and had no interest in it. And then I came back home after finishing my degree, was thinking about my PhDs, just looking into options. And I was managing a swimming pool at the time, actually, as a kind of job to keep me going until I got an academic job. And I saw a job advertised at British Antarctic Survey. And I thought, well, it's only part-time and it's only a three-year contract. It gives me the flexibility to keep applying for other things and find a PhD and everything else. And it was for a Molluscan database manager. So I went and saw my old computer teacher, whose daughter worked at the swimming pool I was managing, and said, look, I'm applying for this job about databases. And she goes, oh, well, you can just do the A-level syllabus on databases, and there's a spare bunch of computers in the back room. You can just work on that whenever you want. So I'd go back to my old school a few times a week and do a few hours studying how to, how to put together databases, which sounds really geeky and boring, but it got me a job in Antarctica in the end. So it's kind of, I owe it all to the lack of job opportunities around at the time other than Antarctic ones, and the fact that, I managed to pick up a bunch of skills. And when I went into interview, the people who'd advertised for a database manager were mostly biologists and paleontologists who had no idea how to run a database themselves. So when I started talking all this stuff from that syllabus, they were like, oh, he knows what he's talking about. So I managed to not quite blag a job, but I definitely learned it within a few weeks. It was more like Oracle for dummies than sort of me being a world expert on these things. And sort of slid my way into an Antarctic marine biology job that was supposed to be half a week's worth of work a week and for three years and 20 something years later, I'm still there doing what that job has progressed into. So that's how I got into polar stuff. And it wasn't for another five or six years that I actually went to Antarctica for the first time. And that I was already hooked on it from having learned stuff from books and papers and things about Antarctica and really kind of interested in not, you know, obviously the penguins, the whales and the seals and stuff are fantastic, but actually the place I was studying and the animals I was studying as part of my job, I was really, really interested in these weird things that were going on. But yeah, that's, that is quite a long story of how I got into polar stuff, but basically I didn't want to get into polar stuff and ended up there anyway. So now I'm kind of, that's it. There's probably no one else who'd take me other than polar institutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? They seem to, in the polar world, it's either people know from a very young age that they love the penguins and the polar bears, or <laughs> they just kind of fall into it, I suppose. I suppose that's the nature of academia, isn't it? It was the same for me. I applied for tons of PhDs, and then, you know, the one I got <laughs> was this Antarctic one. So I think it's not an uncommon... Um, I always like to say there's no such thing as polar science, there's science that you do at the poles. Mm. Almost all of the skills or whatever you have could be brought in. So if you're, if you're really into the poles and you're not doing it right now, it doesn't mean you'll never end up working in the polar regions. You can always steer yourself that way if that's what you really care about. Or lots of us just fall into it, like you say, because that was the opportunity that was around at the time. I'm really lucky because I got a job at British Antarctic Survey without having a PhD and then was able to study alongside my work to get my PhD work done on the subject I was studying for my job. So it was, I did it all the wrong way around in terms of most academic (laughs) career paths. But I knew before I started my PhD what I cared about and what I was interested in and what the topic was. I didn't have to learn anything in my first year. I just got straight into writing, doing the work and testing the statistics and all those sorts of things. There wasn't this kind of, oh my God, I'm doing an Antarctic thing and I don't know what Antarctica is. Mm. I was on those lucky people who had already done it for years before that point. So yeah, it's, it's all the wrong way around for me and I wouldn't recommend it to everybody, but I would say it does show that not everybody has to follow that linear route straight through sort of degree, master's, PhD. There's all sorts of other random ways to do it as well. Sure. And I mean, in some ways, it makes a lot more sense to have worked in the field before you then do your PhD in it. I, I did undergrad, master's, PhD, no breaks. <laughs> and That's was, exhausting. That's really it exhausting. Is, yeah. and it's a lot of pressure as well. Yeah, absolutely. I can attest to that. <laughs> so there's no wrong or right way to do it. All right, yeah, so you kind of describe yourself as a biogeographer, I suppose, is what I see on all of, uh, you know, your staff profile at Bass and ResearchGate and stuff like that. So how, what does that mean, really? It's a kind of glorified branch of marine biology, basically. It's not, the best thing about it is pretty much any 
any biologist or biology related topic could be biogeography because it's essentially the study of where things live and why they live there or conversely why they don't live in other places so it's kind of the reasons behind the patterns you see in biodiversity or abundance or genetics so you can be a phylogeographer which is kind of the next step on where you're doing it on phylogenetics so you're just caring about the genetic sequences of the animals not even what they look like or what they're doing necessarily um and it's about linking people talk about the sort of science idea where you go and collect stuff in a net from the bottom of the sea or take a picture of it as a bit like stamp collecting and with your microplastic stuff it's a similar sort of thing if you just go to one place and take a few samples you've got an idea about one place and it's like well what's the context mm. and biogeography is really bringing in the context of well how have we ended up with what we've got now you've got to look back to kind of paleontology to see what the ancestors of these things were living in and what they were doing and how they were behaving right through to kind of has there been recent fishing in that area or you know everything in between sort of how long was there ice there for because that would have affected what things could have lived there recently and so it's bringing in the idea that the world affecting the biology so the geography and the biology coming together and it's it's so flexible that like i say any anybody who's interested in those kind of patterns could call themselves a biogeographer and it but it also means that a lot of what i do is like geography includes a lot of maps mm-hmm. and statistics about numbers of things and stuff like that so it's i'm still a marine biologist but i've got this interest in spatial stuff i guess yeah i mean obviously yeah it totally makes sense doesn't it to do the like you say the whole picture rather than just it's easy in academia to get partitioned into ever smaller pigeonholes <laughs> having yeah. a speciality so yeah. it is funny though because i'm very often considered to be not a specialist in anything mm. and some people see that as a disadvantage and i quite see it as an advantage because i'm not restricted to one group of animals where i know how to count the number of hairs on their legs and tell you which species it is mm-hmm. i completely respect that side of science and we need that we genuinely need taxonomists and people who can identify microplastics under a microscope or whatever it is you know that level of specialism where you create the basic facts and data but sometimes you need people like me who can work with those people and not just steal their data and run away with it to pull all the threads together to tell the story because knowing that that's a different species to that species if you can't explain some reasons why that one's there and that one's somewhere else then good you know about a lot of species but you need to know potentially what's going to happen with say the climate change or something and you need to then understand what environmental factors are affecting those two species not just identify them so yeah it it makes it more of a team effort but it definitely makes it more interesting for me because i i published on everything from microplastics to plankton to i think yeah lichen on south georgia you know random things and that's not even marine and my skills have come in useful on papers on that so it's being a generalist sometimes really useful because you just have the bigger picture overview of things sure yeah yeah and also being able to you know do all the the stats play with the big data and stuff like that is like so valuable (laughs) so absolutely and it's kind of nice and you get to work with a wide range of people as well like the number of like we did the um scarred biogeographic atlas of the southern ocean which is sky one of those skies scientific committee on antarctic research and the atlas was a huge book literally it's physically huge and it has 147 authors and i was one of the editors of that and making i think i made 600 maps for that wow. <laughs> in total over a few years but working with that many people around the world is a nightmare in some ways because it's just logistically complicated but at the same time you've got this big family of people you've worked with who if you ever want to talk to them about you you already don't need that introduction anymore if i had to work on jellyfish i knew which i know which jellyfish people i talk to now or if i had difficulty identifying some of the animals we catch i have this open door being able to just talk to those people without going dear professor so-and-so let me introduce myself it's like yeah the the horrible cold emails (laughs) exactly so that kind of team effort really helps and i think especially early on in your career you can learn a lot from those kind of team things because you can see how people who behave well 
end up working long term with people and the people who short term act a bit selfishly and get what they want might not continue as long in terms of the success because they haven't got that network to back them up because everyone's fed up of sure. poor <laughs> behavior or whatever. So I think it's a good lesson to see that actually the, the nice people win sometimes because when you see that big team effort and people pulling together, it's a huge achievement and it wouldn't have worked if everyone had been selfish. So it was, yeah, it's a really nice thing to be involved with. That is nice. And then also it must be lovely at conferences where you go and you know tons of people. <laughs> it's a bit like Twitter and things where you meet people for the first time. You're like, oh my God, we've been talking to each other yeah, yeah. <laughs> for potentially years with the Atlas project. And suddenly you realise they're a different person to who you thought they were when you meet them in the flesh. You've got this kind of mental image of what that person will look like. And it happened the other way around for me as well. I went to Scar Biology Conference in Barcelona. That must be 2013, so it's a long time ago now for you. But I was at the conference and there were two PhD students on the desk, the registration desk. And they were doing biodiversity and biogeography type work. And one of them said to me, oh, my God, you're Griffiths? And I was like, yeah. And, one, and that one said, I thought you'd be old. <laughs> and the other one piped up with, and I thought you'd be a woman. Wow. <laughs> and they just made me realise that I'm not the only one who kind of imagines these authors when I'm reading their papers. And I am thinking, well, yeah, they've done loads of work. or published lots of papers. They must be like, walking with a walking stick by now and kind of almost ready for retirement and all of the and it actually then when you meet these people and you go out for dinner with them and you have a nice time and you realize that they're firstly not intimidating they're just interested in the same thing then it's it's really interesting that whole idea that cold email that we we're talking about the fear of writing to somebody actually if you write to them in a polite nice friendly way and say i really like what you've done with this paper most scientists' jaws will drop that somebody's bothered to write to them saying, I like this paper, let alone that they've taken the time to contact them and ask them a question. So, yeah, I would, if I could go back in time and tell my younger self to be less afraid of something, I think that would be it. It's sort of the fact that if they don't reply, it's just probably because they're busy, they don't hate you and you haven't been annoying and you shouldn't stop writing to people just because they don't reply every time within 10 minutes or whatever. But, yeah. Oh, I'd be so flattered if someone emailed me like that. Exactly. <laughs> that your favorite, so, yeah. <laughs> and I've done the same thing where, you know, I a conference I went to, I met someone who had cited a lot during my master's. And it was like, it was a bit like meeting a celebrity, I imagine, <laughs> at first. It, and then we became friends. And it was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> it is funny. It's that thing of when somebody's got a certain reputation in a field that suddenly it becomes like, oh my God, they're the godlike powers of this person. And actually they were in your situation and they've encountered all the same troubles and problems you've been through. So if you're stuck and need their help, they're usually like, okay, I'll point you in the right direction or I'll give you a hand with that. But you've got to be willing to treat them like a human being and talk to them in a way that seems kind of normal and not too fanboy-like because otherwise yeah. it's like, oh my God, there's a weirdo stalking me kind of thing. Whereas actually, if you just write a nice polite email and just say, I really like this work, can I talk about it more with you? Some of them will even arrange a Zoom meeting or something to discuss it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, the worst thing that can happen is they don't reply because they're busy or whatever. So, yeah. Or on field work. That's another thing. Sometimes you wait six months because they've been trapped right. in the Arctic. Within, I suppose, the field of biogeography or something that you've worked on so far do you have a kind of favorite a, f a favorite niche i know you said you're a generalist i would say just from looking at social media you're kind of an advocate for like benthic organisms and you make these beautiful photos of like lots of benthic species you know with the ones with the black backgrounds yeah i yeah i am a benthic biologist it's back to basically the rock pools so benthic needs seafloor and so anything living on the seafloor is usually a bit weirder and more exciting than fish no offense to fish people because fish are brilliant <laughs> but in terms of diversity and numbers of species and everything else the seafloor is super rich and particularly true in antarctica the higher predators and all the cute stuff and everything else adds up to about 70 species in total. Um, the stuff in the middle of the water column, sort of your pelagic, planktony, all of that kind of stuff, and even mesopelagic fish and other things that are kind of somewhere in the middle, about 700 species. Then you get to the bottom of the sea, and at the moment we know of about 19,000 species at the bottom of the sea and are finding new ones all the time. So if you're excited about biodiversity, it's much easier 
don't tell the fish people I said this, or the, you know, to study the biogeography of one species or to study the behaviours, say, of a animal like a penguin, which comes ashore, so you can actually tag it or follow an individual or whatever. If you're looking at the bottom of the sea, about half the species have only ever been found once or twice of the species that we know of. So we don't know what they eat. We don't know how big they get because when you had one, you can't say a size range based on one animal. And so that diversity is huge, but patchy and they're rare, which makes it more challenging and it makes it more interesting. Plus that idea of when you're a kid and you turn over a rock in the rock pool and you don't know what's going to be under there is the same thing as now if I stick a camera system or a net to the bottom of the sea. It's literally like, what are we going to get? What weird thing are we going to see today that no other human being has ever seen? And between about... Depending where we go and how deep we go and things in Antarctica, something between 10 and 20% of everything we bring home with us is a new to, new species to science. And so it's kind of mind-blowing when you're thinking about if I was working in the UK, if I found one new species in a lifetime, that would be lucky. Mm. And we may bring back 10 or 20 new species every time we go. And that's, it's it's cool. It's amazing to be able to do that. But it also then shows you that you need these taxonomists because I couldn't tell you if that's a different species of snail to the other one we found last week. They may look a bit different, but one thing I've learned in this is that things that look the same can be completely different species and things that look completely different can just be the male and female of the same species. So there are a few animals I could name as they come out of the net, but there are plenty of others where I'll go, yeah, just put it in the snail pile and wait for the snail expert because I don't want to be the person who gets it wrong. So, yeah, benthic stuff is just for me more interesting, more diverse. And I do quite like, like some people go, oh, I see spiders, scary, whatever. But I just love all the different shapes and sizes and colours and forms of these animals and the weird lifestyles they have and the weird life cycles they have. And everything about them is just, when we put a net down, we can catch 12 or 13 phyla of animals, which is like the big highest level underneath kind of animals that you've got phylum, like chordates or arthropods or whatever. We can get 12 or 13 of them in one net, which, you know, if you go fishing, you're going to find a whole bunch of chordates that are all from one class of chordates, which are fish. And so I don't think anyone could know all of these benthic animals. I think you, you need a brain the size of the planet to know them all. So I don't feel bad about not knowing the names of all of them, but I do know that it's really fascinating to see biodiversity in a place like Antarctica where you go to the surface and there's a penguin or a seal and some ice and a bit of rock if you're lucky. And it just is, a de- it literally is a desert. And then you go just a little bit beneath the waves and you've got all this life. And It's a jungle. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially like a rainforest down there and it's ama- it's really spectacular. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? People say, oh, we don't know that much about what's at the bottom of our oceans. And <laughs> it is a cliche, but that's def- it's true in the Antarctica. You know, it's constantly it- being updated. It's really true. And so we bring about 10 or 20% of what we find is new to science. If you go into the deep sea of Antarctica, so the deep sea is poorly studied worldwide, but thanks to some really amazing German expeditions, they came back with a handful of samples because you can't get that many samples from the deep because it takes like two days to get one sample from the deepest parts of the ocean. And they brought back enough in terms of just isopods, which are related to the wood lice in your garden. They brought enough new looking species back that it will take 200 years at the current rate to get them all described by science wow. because there aren't <laughs> enough taxonomists sat around waiting for new isopods to come in so 80 or 90 percent of what they were finding was new to science when they went deep and that's because the first time we've looked there so it is like you say cliche city of kind of like but also something else i know that you wanted to talk about with me was we made a discovery recently through a borehole in a floating ice shelf. And we still have no idea what was living on that rock because it just comes from video. And that kind of discovery, if you think about floating ice shelves, cover, what is it, a third of the Antarctic continental shelf? Yes, I have that fact. And it's (laughs) in my notes. (laughs) 1.6 million square kilometres. And this is, I think there'd only been eight boreholes drilled before. So the idea that you then have the first time that someone's found a big rock quite far underneath even though there are rocks dropping off the bottom of ice shelves all the time because they're just ice that's 
been pushed off the land by more ice coming from behind. So basically the end of a glacier, and then it goes, oh, what are we going to do now? I'm ice, I'll float. Mm. So it just floats off in front of the glacier or the ice stream, stays there until the end drops off as icebergs. So some of these ice shelves are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years old, and have covered the ocean floor with darkness, essentially, for thousands and thousands of years. So you've got this habitat where there's no natural food being produced unless you've got something like a methane seep or a hydrothermal vent under there. Then you've got no food source that isn't brought in from outside, so washed in by currents and things. So the further underneath you get under an ice shelf, you'd expect there to be less and less food available. It's sort of described as being like being on the night bus and the last one get to get off, you know, all the plankton's kind of dropping out as you go along the route and then there'll be the, the back end. There's hardly anybody getting off the bus. And so what we'd observed from the previous eight boreholes was that at the end of the line, you get a few scavengers and predators. So you've got these kind of amphipods and things that are little crustaceans, again, related to the sandhoppers on the beach. And some fish, and they can all move around and they can go to where the food settles or eat each other. And you've got this kind of little habitat going on. And you sometimes get things like jellyfish and things washed in, which will probably die there because there's not enough food and sink to the bottom and then be eaten by these other things. So it's quite a simple ecosystem that's lacking all that huge biodiversity and things that we were seeing outside the stuff I was talking about, where you have these huge sponges and corals and amazing life. So we hadn't seen any of those kind of filter feeding animals more than about 80 or 100 kilometres back under the ice, where you've still got a strong current coming in, in the direct inflow from the water that's got daylight above it. And then the geologists who we worked with um, we're drilling a hole to collect a sediment sample from under this ice shelf, and it was 260 kilometres back from any daylight. And they drilled their hole through 900 metres of ice, then lowered their corer through that hole and then down another 500 metres through seawater. And instead of collecting the nice mud at the bottom, they managed to hit this boulder. And so that ruined their sampling. It had taken them weeks to set it all up and get it all ready. So that was a bit annoying for them, to say the least. But they had a GoPro attached to their Cora, and they managed to film the boulder that they hit. In fact, the GoPro hits the boulder at one point. It's that kind of... (laughs) Um, And attached to the boulder were what looked like filter-feeding animals. And this is... It's bad enough that it's 260 kilometres from the front of the ice shelf, but actually the current direction is completely wrong for that. So there are any animals or plants or anything floating in under the ice shelf would be going against the current. If you go in the direction of the current, it's somewhere between 600 and 1,500 kilometres to the nearest food source. So these things really are an extreme point in the food opportunities, as it were. There's not much food coming towards them. So being stuck to a rock is probably the worst sounding strategy because you can't go after the food. The food has to bump into you. So for us to see this... And for them to have captured it on video with a bit of luck like that is amazing. But it does mean everything we thought we knew about what could live that far under an ice shelf and that far from food is now being messed up a bit. And that's kind of the beauty of biology. So I can write these biogeography bio rules of this is how far something can live under an ice shelf or whatever. And then you find nature goes, well, that's what you say. But actually here's something living three times the distance, at least away from food sources and it seems to be doing pretty well so i think that's another thing i really like about antarctica that um, the unknown you've got in lots of places the known unknowns the things you're looking for because you just haven't found them yet whereas in antarctica there's loads of stuff we don't even know we're going to find until we find it so it's an exciting result it is an exciting result, yeah. And um, obviously that raises just so many questions, and <laughs> which I'm going to try and ask. I appreciate you probably don't have answers for them yet, more than, I suppose, just hypotheses. So these are sessile organisms, which, as you say, means they're like permanent. They grew attached to this rock. So how do they get there in the first place? They're miles away from if the currents are in the wrong direction and they, <laughs> you know, it's dark. So we do have, um, there are quite strong currents under there. So they there is the possibility that they just floated in from outside. Or even more possible is that they're the same animals we find outside, but some got washed in and almost like if you went on an island hopping holiday in Greece or something where you wouldn't fly all the way to the end of your journey, you'd do stop off on different rocks along the way, as it were. And so generation after generation, they move along and eventually ended up this far under. Or it could be that we have a specialist community that just lives under ice shelves because it 
is incredibly good at coping with those low nutrient conditions. So it can outcompete things under the ice shelf, but when its larvae go out into the more general conditions washed out, then competing for space is probably harder because they're adapted to low light and low everything and low nutrient conditions, which means they're probably then slower growing and adapted to the opposite conditions to this huge glut of food that's outside. So it could well be that they're a especially adapted, probably related to other things in Antarctica, or maybe even just something that's in the background in normal parts of Antarctica and really sort of flourishes in the places where other things can't. So until we get our hands on a sample, we can never say what they are. They look like sponges to me, but I wouldn't bet my house or my life on them being sponges, but I'd be pretty certain that some of them at least are sponges. But beyond that, we need to get all the physical sample. Are there any plans to do that? It's interesting because there are two real options to it, and both of them require technology that you can think of today, but actually making it work could be a lot harder. So you either have to come in from the outside and send some sort of robotic device 260 kilometres under the ice on its own. Hmm. Well, we could probably send it a robotic device 60 kilometres under an ice shelf, but you'd soon lose any kind of radio signal with it. You won't be able to come to the surface if there's a problem. And you also need to make it clever enough that it can find a boulder because we don't know where the boulders are. Mm. In darkness. <laughs> in darkness. And yeah. sample it in a way that doesn't destroy all the life on it. Right. And then come back out again with enough battery power to do all of that is quite a difficult one. And the other option is the way we got the video, which is to drill holes and to send down something down the hole that could bring back a sample and that sounds easier but you have to create the sort of technology that is in most modern ROVs small enough to go down a borehole and do the complicated work of collecting bits of these things off a rock and not just hoover something up quickly because you actually need to be able to use robot arms and control it and do that kind of thing so that's more feasible miniaturization but every small ROV I've seen used in Antarctica has died within half an hour of going into the really cold water normally because it gets really cold in the air and then you put it into the cold water which is already almost freezing point for seawater then you put something that's minus 20 into that and water freezes all around it and damages the electronics and stuff so we could get there I think with those methods but in the meantime as well if they manage to get a sediment core nearby, there might be bits of DNA in that sediment. Right. But we can start to see what food has floated in because it'll be plankton DNA if it's got that far. We might be able to pick up chemical traces if there's any kind of chemosynthetic, so cold seeps or methane or hydrothermal vents under there that might be feeding some of these things. And also, if we're lucky, if these things are reproducing or dying and bits of cells are dropping off and stuff, there may be some environmental DNA, as it's called, in the water or the sediment, so we could get a water sample as well. But there's no guarantee that what we see on the video is the DNA that we're picking up as well. It's just, right. you know, whatever's floating past. So hopefully a bit of that is floating off them. But environmental DNA is interesting because then it's been done on the West Antarctic Peninsula. They find a lot of crab DNA in the shallower water, but we don't find the crabs in the shallow water. The crabs live in the very deep water, but the water washes up and brings their DNA onto the shelf. So we might find stuff, but it doesn't mean that that stuff is living there. Going back to drilling holes, um, it's not possible to drill a bigger hole. I suppose the logistics just get harder (laughs) the more equipment that you need. The ice experts will probably tell me i've got this completely wrong but in terms of drilling those open boreholes to put devices down which is different to maybe drilling an ice core or something yeah i don't think they stay open that long to be honest because the seawater floods into them as soon as you drill through and then they come up up to buoyancy point with seawater in them the ice shelves are also under a lot of tension and moving so your hole might close up anyway but the bigger your hole is, the more likely I think it is to have more tension in it. But also, you've just got to do a lot more work the bigger your hole gets the effort. And they use hot water drills, which is cool technology in itself. But it does mean then you have to melt more water and keep that heated to make a bigger hole as well. So there's a lot of logistics. And it's hugely expensive to get this equipment into place and have it all set up, And which is why it was frustrating for them to hit a rock instead right. of the thing they wanted. <laughs> Yeah. But it does mean now that we know to ask them to attach a camera every time they do this kind of work and that we'll look at those results much quicker than we did this time because they took that imagery, I think it was in 2016. And I was actually on a ship somewhere else in Antarctica at the time, nothing to do with this project. I don't think it was just a geology and oceanographer's project because I went to look at the currents under the ice as well. But um, I only looked 
uh, the video for the first time in 2018, really. Because it was like, oh, well, you know, so what? And then I realised on a map how far away from the ice front it was. And it was like, oh, that's why this is important. But the geologists didn't know, really know what they were looking at. And we had no idea of the significance until you map it, which is where the kind of biogeography thing comes in again. It's like a, a rock with some sponges on to a marine biologist is pretty normal, everyday stuff. <laughs> but if you change the context of where that rock is, then suddenly it becomes an exciting news story, as it were. I was going to ask why, I mean, it's just, the papers, this just come out like now in 2021. So what, if it was filmed in 2016, that's quite a long time. And I've had intentions of doing stuff with it. It's is quite it funny that lockdown was quite useful. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of the kind of smaller side projects that was not the results of a cruise we've done or other stuff where we've got pressures to write it up or papers that have been waiting for it. Everyone knows that papers take forever anyway. This was the fastest paper ever between submission and publication. It was accepted within a month and published within two. Because wow. it was a, there's not wow. that much you can say about 50 seconds of video. Yeah. And everything else was us gathering all the pre-published and unpublished work from other boreholes to try to back up this story that is this the first time we've actually seen this habitat? Is this the first time we've seen filter feed? You know, you can say it, but actually about a third of the previous work was never published as science papers because it was geologists and oceanographers again drilling a hole and then there'd be something in a local newspaper or Australian newspaper or something saying, look what they found down this borehole, isn't it amazing? But the biologists never followed it up because it's just one animal at the bottom of a hole. So we brought that all together and that was the most work. So it took me about six months to bring together all the previous stuff to look at the video and assess that took me a couple of days to be pretty certain that this is as far as I can go with this information from the video. But then six months of doing all the background work, which is kind of, I guess, like doing a PhD and stuff where you think, oh, my experiments, I'll do my experiments. And you come to write it and you think, oh, my God, there's so much more to do than just doing the experiments and the statistics. It's like, now I have to understand what this means. And then you realise that you actually have to reference other people's work as well. So you have to kind of read everything that's ever been done. And luckily, eight boreholes isn't too much, but actually finding the people who did that work. So half of my co-authors are just people who gave me the basic images from those other boreholes because they said, oh, yeah, you can just have this video or have these photographs we took. And see for yourself. And it turns out that some of them weren't that great at identifying things that they called maybe a starfish when it was a sea anemone or the other way around or whatever. And you think this is why you need marine biologists to look at this stuff as well. And this is why nothing had come of it because, as quite rightly, it's not their job to understand the significance of what they were looking at. That's what people like me do. Sure. That's like biogeography in a nutshell I suppose bringing it all together to yeah, <laughs> exactly. find out was important yeah there you go I was going to ask why so little has been looked at under ice shelves before is it just pure logistics and then what about what does it mean when you have like a massive when a really big ice shelf breaks away you know does that reveal the whole area of seafloor that's not been looked at before is that that's a really good question because that was our main method of investigating in the past. So Larsen A and B, which are on the northeast side of the Antarctic Peninsula, are no more. They were the Larsen A ice shelf and Larsen B ice shelf. And in my lifetime, both of those have collapsed and gone. Nobody could get in straight away because of the amount of ice. When only things literally like the day after tomorrow, that film where the ice shelf falls to pieces with the men on it. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's like that. One of them just went completely just into bits. But a few years later, German expeditions got in and explored it, and they found evidence of a bit of chemosynthetic, so methane seeps they found some evidence for, but it was sort of dying off at the time. And they found some animals, and they went back a couple of years later, and those animals had grown faster than they expected. So this idea of taking the lid off the cave, as it were, and letting the daylight in meant that some of those sponges and things had suddenly shot up and grown in those places where they weren't growing before. But nobody got in there to see what it was like immediately when the ice disappeared. Okay. And that's a shame, but that is like the nature of. <laughs> so then, when Larsen C, which is the next in the chain down the peninsula, they're very imaginative naming for these things, <laughs> A, B, and C. Larsen C had the huge iceberg A68, which is just disintegrated off South Georgia. 
broke off a few years ago, I was part of a grant that said the bass ship down to get in there within, before it even fully moved away, this huge iceberg, to see if we could look underneath it. And the sea ice that year defeated us and we didn't get in. <laughs> so then the next year I went on Palastern with the Germans who were going to the same area to see if we could get in because the iceberg hadn't moved that much by then. So it still would have been a fairly good idea of what was living under there. And once again, the sea ice defeated us and we were stuck for like two weeks in the ice, not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Luckily, Palastern's a huge ship and we were never in any danger. But um, that was a brilliant trip and we did lots of interesting work elsewhere, but we didn't get in. And now that iceberg slowly drifted away and went up to South Georgia and fell apart. But very, very recently, in the last month or so, another large iceberg broke off the Brunt Ice Shelf, which is the ice shelf that British Antarctic Survey's Halley Station is sat on. I can't remember the name of that one, but it's it's another A, because A is the Weddell Sea. So you get a kind of sequential number every time an iceberg breaks off. And then if they break up into littler bits, they became like A68, A, A68, B, A68, C. So they very simple naming system for these icebergs. But this huge iceberg that just broken off moved away enough that the Palastern was in the area at the time and they went behind it, which is incredibly brave. And the skill of the, you know, they're literally sailing through what looks like the Grand Canyon kind of thing in between the ice shelf and the iceberg. And then they went in and they took thousands of images and lots of video with an OFOB system, which is a system the Germans use that does bathymetry. So sort of sonar mapping of the seafloor and takes thousands of photographs and does really high resolution video. So you end up with 3D images of the seafloor where you can drape your video or photos over this high definition sonar image. And so you can basically say that sponges this these dimensions and this many litres in size or whatever. So it's um, it's amazing kit. So they came back with brilliant photos. And it was great because it was what we expected because it was only, it was quite a long iceberg, but not that wide. So it's about 30 kilometres wide. Okay. So the furthest under the ice shelf was about 30 kilometres. And we've seen habitats like that through boreholes before. Mm. And it had the typical Antarctic fauna, uh, lots of sea pigs, which are a type of sea cucumber. And I, if no one's ever heard of a sea pig before, go away and Google it because they're mm. the cutest weird invertebrates in the ocean. Lots of drop stones, so these rocks that drop off the bottom of icebergs or ice shelves. So they're rocks that were on the land, and as the ice scraped over those rocks, it picked them up and carried them off on the bottom. And as the bottom slowly melts, the rocks drop out onto the seafloor. And you can imagine them, like the boulder we found, are little oasis of life that needs a hard substrate to live on. Yeah, they're the so a lot of things. Yeah, basically miniature islands in a sea of mud. And lots yeah. of things love the mud, so the sea pigs and other sea cucumbers and um, giant um, sea spiders and things. They love the mud and they're all walking around on that. But then you get these little islands that are covered in corals and sponges and crinoids, which are called feather stars, which again, worth looking up if you don't know what they are. These little things all just perched on these rocks. And it, the images are brilliant. And it does help to confirm that there's enough water flow bringing enough food into that area to pretty much be a fairly normal Antarctic habitat. But again, that was a unique opportunity. The ship was in the right place at the right time. Within a week, it had rotated around the iceberg and would have crushed them where they were. Oh, so wow. <laughs> obviously they got out in plenty of time and that was all planned. And they were studying the iceberg with satellite information and stuff the whole time. And they also had helicopters. So they know the route ahead is safe because they send the helicopters on behind in front of them and they also get them to check it generally. So that, that was amazing and a bit of luck that the right ship was in the right place at the right time. But it adds that extra bit of knowledge. That must have been incredible to be on in that moment. I was <laughs> Going in, behind I was an really, iceberg. Oh, it's so cool. Really, <laughs> really, really jealous. Yeah. And the best bit was I knew a handful of the people who were doing that work. So I was getting to see that they were sending me some images. They were telling me what they were finding. So when it came out as a news story the next day, I was like, yeah, I've already seen all these pictures where people are sending me the thing saying, look at this, this is amazing. I'm like, yeah, I saw that a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. But it, it is fantastic that the people who are doing it are people we work with. So it adds to this story without being some sort of competition. We all work together on it to try and understand these bigger picture things. And the fact we could get a ship like that with the right kit, you know, that we would have spent 
years writing a grant and trying sure. to get it funded and getting our chance to get on the ship. And it would all have changed. And they went in the week it happened mm. and just drove straight in behind, deployed exactly the right equipment, and then got out of there again just before it all changed. So, yeah, it's the best luck we could have had after two years of in a row of really bad luck of trying to get into these things. Sure. Yeah, I guess it just sometimes happens like that, doesn't it? It's, it's lucky if you're on it. And, and yeah. So unlucky if you're not. So what does it kind of go, just go back to these, um, this finding down this borehole, apart from it being the first of its kind as in it's so, so far away, um, you know, so far inland, I suppose, I'm using air quotes there because it's not land, obviously. <laughs> um, apart from it being the first like that, why, why else is it such a kind of, paradigm shift what are the what are the wider implications i suppose is it for like you know evolution or um i was reading the end of your paper and it's like implications for astrobiology and stuff like that yeah well it really is it's captured i've been working with a couple of paleontologists anyway on other things but it's really captured our imagination in terms of well what else is possible at other time periods in the earth or other places in the universe if we think that we're always amazed that there was life at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. And yes, it's got really high pressure and things like that. But for a lot of invertebrates, pressure is less important because they're just at the same pressure as the water around them because their bodies are just letting water in and out all the time. Yeah. But that, you know, you're talking a few kilometres to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. The back of the Ross Ice Shelf, which is 700 kilometres whether you're measuring the current directions or anything, you know, just physical distance as the crow flies is 700 kilometres. And you've got fish there living yeah. <laughs> and shrimps and things. And you're just like, whoa. So we were amazed we found something a few kilometres down, but hundreds of kilometres sideways. And there's big life there, not just bacteria or something a little bit weird, you know, that nobody's ever heard of that does something really strange. These are normal animals that we're used to seeing, people who live in the most extreme and weird places. So it does make you think about other times in history when the Earth was a lot colder and a lot more glaciation, other places in the universe where there might be liquid water under a lot of ice. There's just a whole range of things. But also that question of, well, if it's one-third of the Antarctic continental shelf and I could be surprised by the ninth thing we've looked at, Mm. then it means what else is under else these is huge there? areas but also it's a huge area of ice shelves that under ice shelves that is connected to the rest of the ocean what role does this part of the ocean we know oceanography oceanography wise it's really important because it cools a lot of water and there's a lot of creation of antarctic bottom water and things around these ice shelves and winds are generated off them that affect the sea ice and all that. So we know they're important. Ice shelves are important and the water that goes underneath them is important. A lot of them get melted away by the warm water coming underneath. But we don't know what role these animals and things play in the general scheme of things for Antarctica or the world. And what, what is their job in the, in the bigger Antarctic ecosystem? You know, how much water are they filtering a day? How much, how much of the nutrients are they locking away in carbon that doesn't go back into the atmosphere? You know, all of these questions, we pretty much ignored those bits because, well, they're hidden under the ice and there's no photosynthesis going on, so they can't be doing that much. Well, actually, it just shows we didn't even know what was living there, let alone what they're doing. So They could be doing something we've not even thought of. <laughs> exactly. So, or how many methane seeps and other things are built up underneath these ice shelves from dead and rotting material in the sediment or whatever, that huge sources, again, of methane that we didn't know was there that might affect climate and things. Yeah. So this, there's a lot of... Yeah, it's the best thing about this paper and the worst thing about this paper is the fact that if we could say whatever we want. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just I, hypotheses. <laughs> it's just the hypothesis. Yeah. And, yeah, at the same time, it's like, oh, so many questions that I want to answer. And some very simple things could do it if you're in a normal place to work. If you're back on that beach in West Wales, you just go out there with a bucket and spade and you collect what you need. And I guess that's why I also quite like when I get to do things like I've worked in the Arctic on intertidal things with Kath Waller, who works in Hull. And um, it's the opposite. When we get to go to beaches in Iceland and Greenland and stuff, we can walk to them. 
Yeah. Or you can drive your four by four to a remote beach on the north coast of Iceland, then go out there with your bucket in Spain and literally collect things off the beach or put out transects and quadrats and all the kind of ecology you did in school. And simple, low-tech stuff, but now just take videos and photos with your phone as well or get a drone to fly over it and get a map of it or whatever. But the basics are so much easier in some places than other. And this very extreme place, just doing the basics is impossible sometimes. And that's when people go, well, why didn't you know this before about Antarctica? It seems quite basic. And it's like, yeah, how are you going to get through the 900 metres of ice before you start answering your basic questions? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's also interesting. And like you say, there's so many potential implications. Yeah. All right, that brings us to the end of part one of my interview with Hugh Griffith. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed it. If that's all you have time to listen to today, then thank you once again for listening to Polar Times. As usual, you can contact us uh, via thesearepolartimes at gmail.com, thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Thank you. Or you can tweet apexpolar at, under, at polar underscore research. Yeah, you know the drill. It's on the, it's on the bio. Yes, so that was part one. And coming up in part two, Hugh talks much more about all of his polar experiences. He has lots of polar experiences from the field, uh, from north and south. Um, And he also talks about lots of the science communication stuff that he does. So if you are a young academic, pretty much in any field, thinking about branching into science communication or worried that you don't do enough of it, then I'd recommend you listening to because he has lots of tips and tricks and we talk about why it's necessary if it's necessary all kinds of stuff so yeah so that will be part two coming up thanks again for coming back to polar times please note that whilst this is an apex production the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own do not represent the views or opinions of apex or any other host institution mentioned 